Morning. Good to be with you here on the fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent is the traditional season when the church looks forward to the birth, to celebrating the birth of Christ. It celebrates when the world was looking forward to the Messiah. It's a time of preparation traditionally in the church. Um, you are getting ready to celebrate, but you're also considering what it means for Christ to be coming and to examine your own life and kind of prepare yourself for the advent of Christ. A personal making straight the ways of the Lord, filling in the valleys and straightening out the curves. So, Traditionally, each Sunday of Advent would have a different theme. And uh, we've talked about the Sunday of Joy, that this fourth Sunday uh, in, in the church, in, in several traditions, has been thought of as the Sunday of Peace. And what does it mean to have peace? Let's, if I say peace to you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Calm, that's a good one. Any other definitions? Any? The absence of strife. That's a good one. Any other definitions? I think throughout the history of the world, very often we've thought of peace as the absence of conflict. We think of peace as meaning that there's no war going on, that there's no strife going on. We're delivered from all that. Well, the gospel is a gospel of peace. It's it's spoken of as a gospel of peace. Paul says that Christ himself is our peace. But it doesn't always manifest as the absence of conflict. As a matter of fact, in Christ, God is going to do something where he's going to give people peace in the midst of conflict. Very often, in the troubles of life, we can, you can get into an attitude of, of, well, once we get past this whatever spot we're in, you know, then we can get back to living life as normal. And uh, certainly when you're very young, you, that's kind of how you view it. It's like there are bumps in the road, but you get past the bump to another uh, place and, and you have peace. But one of the things you realize as you live longer and longer is there's always another bump and there's always another bump. Uh, in this life, we will have troubles. That's a promise from Scripture. Nobody quilts that one on a pillow, though. You know, there's all that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, you'll see that one on a pillow. But you won't necessarily think, in this life you will have trouble. But that is, that's a biblical promise. But it comes with the second part of that, but it's be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And this Sunday we're going to kind of look at that, how God gives peace regardless of the circumstances. And peace with God comes through the presence of God in the situation. Not necessarily... The, the circumstances disappearing, but you having peace in the circumstances because of the presence of God and his, his loving presence. That's one of the great pictures of scripture is God says, I'll prepare a feast for you in the midst of your enemies. Not I'm going to take you out of your situation, but I'm going to give you cause to celebrate and enjoy life even in the midst of your celebration. So our first scripture this morning, if you'll turn with me to the book of Psalms, We're going to look at Psalm 80 this morning. 
Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God, and make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty, and make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the good ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, and its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty, look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root of your right hand that the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down and burned with fire. At your rebuke your peoples perish. Let your hand rest rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man that you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty, and make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now, we don't know which particular occasion this psalm is written for, but it could fit many different times in Israel's history. One of the things over and over we talk about in preaching is how all of Scripture is is a, a coherent story of God's redemption, that these aren't just individual sayings that were collected into a book, but it is the story of God's relationship to his people. It's a story that starts with God making a good creation that he intended for fellowship with us and through our own bad choices the corruption of that creation and God's plan to redeem it and we talk about how that one element in his plan of redemption was calling a people for himself to represent himself before creation and that was Abraham and his family which became the nation of Israel but that they weren't faithful to that mission and when they, when they sought God and were following him, he did bless them. He brought them into the land he promised them. He drove out the nations before them. They did flourish. This language of the vine is talking about Israel. It's talking about Israel as God's adopted son. It talks about how they spread from the sea to the river, which is from the Mediterranean to the Jordan and even beyond. But now they said he'd broken down the walls. Well, Why? One of the things God told them when they came into the Holy Land, the Promised Land, the Holy Land as we call it, um, is that I've called you, you are my people, you are a special people, but you're not special in that way. If you do the things that the people that are already here are doing, the same thing will happen to you. The land itself will spit you out. And when Israel forgot their calling, when they veered away from God, they would lose his blessing, and the peoples around them would come in and raid them. That's the walls were broken down. The wild boars would come in and, and feast on it. Now, this metaphor of, of Jesus, I mean, of, of Israel as a vine, is one that Jesus is going to use. He's going to talk about, didn't I plant this vineyard? And it's, it's not giving me anything. You find this notion of fruitfulness over and over and over as a metaphor in the Bible, and Israel being 
this plant that God had looked for to provide fruit, and it didn't. And so that's kind of the situation that the psalmist is talking here, but he's saying, restore us and we'll turn, we'll turn back to you. And he talks about this man, this son of man who sits at God's right hand that you've raised up for yourself. This is a looking forward to the Messiah. Now at this time, they don't know what form the Messiah is going to take. They knew there would be a Messiah, but a lot of people, they had different expectations of who Messiah would be and what Messiah would do. But they are looking forward to that Messiah. And there's this notion that when Messiah comes, he will bring them peace. He will bring them peace. He will bring them restoration of their fortunes. So we're going to go forward to the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn to the right in your Bibles, as they're laid out here. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. start at the beginning of chapter 7 here to give it a little context. When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king in Judah, King Rezim of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord God said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shir Jashub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim too will be, shat- will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you, do not stand, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is troubles. This is all about troubles. This is all about a lack of external peace. We're at this time where we're seeing the wrapping up of things concerning Israel as a nation. Israel has already been split into two rival kingdoms. 
at this point. You have the northern kingdom, which is with every generation farther and farther away from God, even though there are faithful prophets there and there are always a remnant of people worshiping God. As a nation, it is traveling far from God. And then you have Judah in the south, which is still holding with God, although depending on which king is in power, it can be doing a very poor job of it, switching to pagans, pagan idols, and then coming back in times of renewal. It's not great. It's just better than what's to the north of it. So here the king of Judah is looking with fear because his traditional enemies, Aram, has come against them, but this time they're allied with the northern kingdom of Israel. So this, you're facing not just your traditional enemy, but your family is with them too. These are people that at one time were your kin, who were one time with you, and now they're separate from you and they're part of your enemies. That can be very discouraging when people who should be with you, who should be on your side, are now aligned with your enemies. One of the saddest things that when you look out at the contemporary culture around us is we've forgotten what it means in some sense to be the people of God. If we are Christians, if we're called by Christ's name, our highest allegiance is to Christ. Everything else is less important than that. That's not a tribal identifier. It's not a flag. It's not just a label. It is our highest allegiance. But because of division uh, in, in perspectives of people of this country, we have some really weird situations coming up. There is a, was a, a church group, a, a group of an alliance of ministers that in the past had done really great things and uh, at one of their most recent gatherings, one of their keynote speakers was a famous atheist who in no way has made peace with Christians. He still considers the idea of believing in God to be utterly ridiculous, and he heaps scorn on believers. Yet these believers were willing to give him pride of place at their convention and let him speak because he shared their political view. And they thought that was more important, that he would criticize people that had a different political agenda than them. They, they elevated that to the primary place. That should never be. We should never be divided over that. We can have divisions in, in how we think you per, pursue the gospel. But when we elevate other things, when we elevate a political position to the highest thing, I have had, you know, I... Something I never thought when I first became a Christian I would hear, and, and I heard this 15 years ago now, so it's not even that recent, but I heard somebody say, well, you know, you, you can't be a Christian if you belong to X and such political group. I'm like, excuse me? That, that trumps confessing Christ as your Savior, believing in the resurrection? If, if you think there is an identity that's higher than that, and you make common cause with somebody else, you're, you're here like Israel. You've... You're making war on your own people for the sake of power because you've elevated power above God. And that's what's going on here. And God opposes it, and he's going to give comfort to the king of Judah. He tells Isaiah, you know, go meet him in the field and tell him this. Tell him, I'm going to want you to speak to him. And I love this. Go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, which is uh, Hebrew, it means a remnant will remain. 
got to be a tough thing being in the family of a prophet <laughs> because you're going to be a symbol and you're going to get a name that, you know, means something. Um, everybody else is, you know, Bob, Sam, Simeon. And you're, a remnant will remain. You can go through your whole life like that. And that's, that's, there are worse ones than that, you know. How would, how would you like to grow up with a name like Unfaithful because you're a symbol? <laughs> Like, who's that? Ah, oh, that's unfaithful. It's, it's a rough thing. God, uh, being called as a prophet or being the family member of a prophet, uh, sometimes it's going to be a rough thing. But God sends Isaiah and he says, you go speak to him and you tell him this. Not to worry about these people because as powerful as these armies are, there's nothing behind them but human power. The head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. It's like, that's just a man, that, that, that big nation of, Dema- you know, of Aram, capital of Damascus, it all just comes down to that guy. Same thing with Samaria. The head of Samaria is only the king. We can think that there are powerful forces out to oppose us. That's, that's a very popular narrative in mailings when you're doing fundraising for the church, that there are these existential threats. Oh, the church is in danger. The church is not in danger. Things can happen, but Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. That's a promise. That's going to happen. Things will come, but they're never things we're supposed to be afraid of as existential threats. As Christians, we know what our hope is founded on. It will not be moved. And if you let fear move you out of the place where God gives you peace, the foundation of the gospel, then you'll be in trouble. But when you're founded in the gospel, the the things coming against you, it's only men. It's not going to triumph ultimately. You don't have to be afraid of that. He says, and I'm going to give you a sign. He said, virgin's going to be with child. In in the Hebrew, it's just there's going to be a young girl who's pregnant. Greek translation of it, the Septuagint, um, uses uh, parthenos, which means virgin. Um, But here it's just young child, and it's probably actually... Like everything in scripture, it's speaking to multiple things. So it's speaking to this time, probably talking about King Hezekiah. You know, before he grows up, this is going to pass. He's going to eat curds and honey. Things are going to be good in the land before this kid is old enough to know right and wrong. This is going to pass, but it's also going to be looking forward to the Messiah that we're looking forward to, because this is going to be taken as a prophecy of Jesus and of deliverance, that when he's born, we can know things are changing. And it's interesting because what God brings about to end this situation is he brings the king of Assyria. If you know your history, this is, don't worry, I'm going to take away the two bullies on the street uh, because the mafia is going to move in. Um, this is kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire. But God will deliver them from uh, Assyria too because Assyria is God's chosen instrument in this case to bring judgment on Aram and Israel. But then Assyria will overstep its bounds and go after Judah and God will again give a word of peace to them and say, don't, don't you worry. And if you know the story, Sennacherib's army is camped around Jerusalem and then at night the angel of death walks through the camp and... In the morning, most of the army's dead. God delivers them from that too. 
But my point here is it's not the circumstances which bring peace. Yes, God is telling you, I'm going to deliver you from this. But it's not going to be the absence of of strife. It's just going to be you're safe through it all. I will preserve you through it all. You will have my presence. So no matter what's going on around you, you will have peace. Now we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. These are the traditional lectionary readings for the fourth Sunday of Advent in the liturgical year A, which we're now in. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ. To all who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing because of what Messiah has accomplished, because there is now a Prince of Peace who's been established. And he's writing to the church in Rome. And he can tell them, you're going to have grace and peace from God. Now, the occasion of Romans, there had been, under the Emperor Nero, kind of a persecution of Jews in Rome, and they'd actually all been expelled from Rome. And then... The Jews were allowed gradually to come back. They came back into Rome. Something had happened during the period while they were um, expelled from Rome, however, and that is that the gospel had come to Rome. And there were Christian communities flourishing in the gospel in Rome, churches. And then the Jews came back, and many of the Jews were followers of Christ. They were also Christians. And when they all came back together, there was kind of this weird situation where you had these Gentile Christians who'd come to faith outside of the community of Jews and didn't know those traditions. And then you had Jews coming back who were Christians, and there's kind of these Gentile guys who are calling on Christ. And there was some, some tension there. And Paul, one of the main reasons Paul wrote this letter was to kind of address those situations in Rome and, and let them know how they were all, both Jew and Gentile, part of the same tradition, part of the same family, and how they would have peace because of that. Uh, Colossians tells us that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. He's restoring the whole world. And as things are reconciled with Christ, as we all draw nearer to Christ, necessarily we all draw nearer to each other. As we get closer to Christ, as we're more formed as his, we're more formed into his family and we're more fitted with each other. Throughout its history, the church has always done better when we preach Christ as the center. Because as we all draw nearer to Christ, we draw nearer to each other. We've been at our worst when we try and define what the boundaries of the kingdom are. Because when we, find, when we draw boundary lines, we find that we're putting some people on one side of the line and some people on another. So when you elevate things to the place of importance that aren't Christ, you cause division. And that's not what God was doing. God was giving us peace in Christ. 
And Paul starts by saying, hey, you're part of this now. You're called to belong to Christ. And because of that, I wish you grace and peace. Now, physical peace is not going to come to the church for another 400 years. Well, 340 some odd years. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to suffer. But that doesn't keep them from having peace. As a matter of fact, that's one of the marks of the early church is they face everything with peace. And it makes it incredibly attractive because instead of being fearful and scattered, instead of holding out and hoping for being rescued out of the situation, they face everything with peace because they know that creation has changed. There's a new order. There's a prince of peace. And whatever happens to them here, it's only temporary. That there is a restoration coming. In the last verse, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. This is going to be a different piece. This is going to be internal peace. And if you'll go to Matthew chapter 1, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. For a very short section of verses, there's a lot going on here. Cut that grin out. It's been a while since I've said there's a lot going on here. I know that's one of my favorite phrases about scripture, but I've, I've avoided it for a while, so I can come back to it now. <clears throat> this language of betrothed, and some of your translations might have engaged, is, is, is weak. This isn't just like... They're, they're not engaged. This isn't like this is his fiancée. That's an arrangement we have now, and you can change your mind. This is the first part of marriage already. They're already committed to each other, which makes this much more serious. It's not just like finding out the woman you're engaged to is pregnant. This is adultery. Strictly speaking, standing on the law, Joseph could have condemned her as an adulteress and had her killed. But Joseph is a really special guy. He does not stand on his rights. Even when he doesn't understand the situation, he's not insisting on his rights. He wants this to happen quietly so as not to expose Mary to shame, not to expose her to the penalty. He wants this to happen quietly, even before he knows what's... This is not a man who is... Sticking, sticking a standard in the ground to stand up for his rights. This is somebody who is trying to be kind and compassionate in an incredibly difficult situation. 
but the angel appears to him. And something that always strikes me in this narrative that, that's just really easy to miss, when the angel speaks to him, he addresses him, he says, Joseph, son of David. He doesn't just say Joseph. That's a messianic title. Son of David is a royal messianic title. We focus on the advent of Jesus. We focus on his coming. But we miss that one of the key actors in here is of the royal line of David. Joseph is a descendant of kings. The promised line of David runs through him. He's not just Joe Schmo. He's, he's Joe King. Um, says, look, Joseph, son of David, you are, you are a deliverer of your people too. How you handle this will affect everything. Because he could have exposed her disgrace, but he didn't. He could have disassociated her himself from her and, and divorced her quietly as he was hoping. She wouldn't be stoned to death. But nobody would ever give any credence to Jesus' ministry if he was a child out of wedlock, even, even with this marriage, who were still rumors about Jesus. Yeah, we know him. You know, Joseph and Mary couldn't wait. Imagine what would have happened to his ministry had his father not stepped up. And his father had to know that it's going to result in shame and ridicule to him. There's always going to be snide remarks and little nudges and stuff when he comes by. But it's okay. Because he's from that messianic line as well. And because of that, this situation that could result in turmoil, could result in domestic turmoil, there's peace in it. Because he had peace in his heart. Because he didn't look out for himself. Because he didn't stand up for himself. But he was willing to lay down his reputation and his life for the sake of the gospel. And God brings peace. God did not bring an absence of this troubling pregnant circumstance. It did not bring an absence of, of rumors and things. But Joseph's actions brought peace into this situation. And because of that peace, Jesus was able to fulfill the messianic promise of that Isaiah passage where it said the virgin will be with child. And Jesus was able to accomplish what he did. And we believe that because Jesus accomplished what he did, that no matter what happens in this world, we will have peace. And we're also, we believe we're people of the already and the not yet. We believe not only right now will we have peace in the midst of our circumstances, but that in the fullness of time, everything will experience peace. And we know it can look like it's taking a long time. We can see the world around us. We can see the circumstances around us. We can think, how long, God? But Scripture promises us God is not slow, not like we think of slowness. But God wants the widest possible scope for redemption because he wants to be, bring peace to the greatest possible extent.